chapter one. He adored New York City. He idolized it all out of proportion. Uh, no, make that, he, he romanticized it all out of proportion. Yeah. To him, no matter what the season was, this was still a town that existed in black and white and pulsated to the great tunes of George Gershwin. Uh, now, let me start this over. Tribeca, right next to the narrow, but I'll be hood forever. I'm the new Sinatra, and since I made it here, I can make it anywhere. Yeah, they love me everywhere. I used to cop in Harlem, all of my Dominicanos right there up on Broadway. Pull me back to that McDonald's, took it to my stash spot, 560 State Street. Catch me in the kitchen like a Simmons whipping pastry. Cruising down A Street, off white Lexus, driving so slow, but BK is from Texas. Me, I'm out there, bed stop, home of that boy Biggie. Now I live on Billboard. And I brought my boys with me, say what up to Tata, still sipping my top, sitting courtside, Knicks and Nets give me high five, nigga I be spiked out, I could trip a referee, tell by my attitude that I most definitely from And welcome to the good trash to cinema. Stop. <laughs> Why are you calling it that? <laughs> no, really, it makes my butt tighten up. See, the thing is, though, it's not actually pretentious to call what we're doing here at the good trash to cinema what we call it. Because what we're doing is we're taking down those movies that Kaye du Cinema and other highfalutin bits of cinematic evaluation and criticism, and we're going to get good trash down and dirty with those kinds of films. And we're very, very excited to be doing that together today with my co-host, and again to my left, sir, if you would. I am Arthur Gordon, and my voice is authoritative, like the Pope or the computer from 2001. And I'm so glad that you're here with all that authority. To my right also... My name is Dalton Stewart. I didn't mean... I wasn't... I mean, wasn't trying to run over, first of all. Second of all, behind these dark-rimmed glasses lies the coiled sexual prowess of a jungle cat. Finally, my name is Dustin <laughs> Sells, and I'm just so glad to be here uh, talking about the film Manhattan. If you hadn't guessed already, Woody Allen's uh, one of his breakthrough films uh, where he is being regarded less as a box office cessation, all uh, those comedic heroes that we see from Saturday Night Live, they begin to branch out to film and begins to move towards some sort of strange auteur, if we can bust out a little more French in this show, status. So, you might find yourself wondering, what the hell am I listening to? Who are these people? Where am I? <laughs> Well, Grandma, you're suffering from dementia. Exactly, and I Grandma, apologize. I think I'm going to have to put you in a home. <laughs> I'm sorry, I still love you. Uh, in all seriousness, though, you might be somehow have started with the, the spinoff instead of, you know, the show proper. It's like coming into Angel without having seen Buffy. Which would be foolish. That would be ignorant. And, you know, not as good. That's true. <laughs> Hopefully this is as 
We're not uh, selling ourselves short at all. Normally, this is the good trash genre cast in which a couple of guys who uh, met each other in college and started doing a thing for a club kept doing it after school. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> you dirty man. Uh, normally, we look at cult and genre films and we try to bring a little academia to them, right? That's kind of what we do. We try to elevate genre. Uh, so we decided we've been doing it for like a year, and we thought, you know, maybe we should look at some quote art films, a cultural consensus of what an art film is, and grab it and bring it down to our level, bring it down to the good trash, and kind of and, and do what we normally do with films that are quote unquote too good for our normal show. What we're trying to do, dear listeners, be that guy's got no business being with that girl. That's what we're trying to do. So, I'm Dalton Stewart. As I already mentioned, uh, I have a, a bachelor's in sociology, so most of my, my analysis comes from uh, that, that background. Mr. Arthur Gordon, can you give your credentials as well? I am Arthur Gordon. I have a master's of arts in English film studies. Isn't that somewhere? I don't know. It's in there somewhere. It's got a long title. It's yeah, important. it's ridiculous. Um, my name is Dustin Sells. I have a Master's of Arts in Theology and Culture from Fulvio Theological Seminary. I'm also uh, about a thesis away from completing the same strangely um, placed degree that um, Arthur is already a complete tent thereof. So what these fine gentlemen are saying is I'm not nearly as qualified to be at this table as they are. But fuck it, we're going to do the show anyway. Hey, Dalton knows some stuff, and he knows some cinema, and we are so glad like, you're here. I like to think of myself as the layman a little bit. You know, I watched a whole lot of movies, if that helps. So I think of myself. As a layman? <laughs> I think that's how Woody Allen thinks of himself. Oh, he a lot. is. Well, let's get right into it then. <laughs> the film in question, dear listener, is a film called Manhattan. It's the breakout again of Mr. Woody Allen. And uh, we are going to give a quick synopsis of the film. And then we're going to talk about why this movie is considered to be art. So, if you would... Mr. Arthur Gordon, sir. Well, hold on. He's Arthur Gordon on the Good Trash genre cast. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema. Correct, correct. But 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 we, let's bring a little pomp and circumstance to it. You know, indeed. I think tonight he's probably something more along the lines of Arturo Gordon, voice of the cinema. A divorced New Yorker, currently dating a high schooler, uh, brings himself to look for love in the mistress of his best friend instead. Yep, it's a romantic comedy. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was so NPR. Terry <laughs> Gross and Woody Allen had a strange, misshapen, redheaded child. You know, um, they probably did. <laughs> yeah. Think of or Frank's that. or Frank's the dad, depending on who you ask. Long and hard. All right, moving on. Um, <laughs> Great Dane is more up your alley. We all had a long we, <laughs> we all had a long day. So we're gonna talk quickly, um, just around the table, why this is considered to be art cinema, why this is elevated above basically a rom com. Because generally speaking That's what it is. We're dealing with a rom-com. There's other elements that are being tied up therein, but we'll discuss more of that here in just a few moments. But I want to talk about why this has that critical consensus where if you're looking for cinematic gold, if you're looking for some of those great films, uh, really one of the great movies of American cinema, uh, this is going to make a top 50 list. Mm-hmm. And so why is that Why is that true, Dalton Stewart? Well, I, I think, and if you listen to our first episode of The Good Trash Do Cinema... 
mm-hmm. um, where we in which we discuss Pulp Fiction, which I think is really the the end all be all bridge between popular film and art film. I think that is the go to for a lot of people, That's fair. both in terms of its approachability and in terms of how how old it is. I think it's a perfect amount of old to be in the canon. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it's perfect. And in that episode, I talked a lot about genre elevation and genre deconstruction and why why that made Pulp Fiction art to me. And, and, and I think we see a lot of those same things in Manhattan in a lot of ways. It is, as Dustin said, essentially a romantic comedy. And nuts and bolts, it's the same parts, uh, frankly. But there is a lot of meta-conversation going on here. Uh, and again, let's, you know, let's define our terms. Meta being this idea of self-referentiality, this, a thing that knows what it is. Meta, in the Greek, meaning all the things. Exactly. Uh, but but to put it in more you know plainly, a snake eating its own tail I think is a good illustration. It, it, it is a thing that exists by consuming itself. Um, so uh, we we look at a film like Pulp Fiction in a lot of ways, a film that has a conversation with other gangster films. We look at a television show like uh, Community, uh, a television show that has a conversation with other television shows and other media. And I think Manhattan does that. By taking a romantic comedy in which the conversation is had with high art. And I think mm-hmm. that is important here. I, I, I don't think it's any mistake that Woody Allen goes out of his way to reference intellectualism uh, and high art, both visual art, uh, you know, uh, paintings and sculpting and film, uh, but also literature uh, and just academia as a whole. There's a lot of talk about the master, well, not blatant talk, but there's a lot of veiled references to the masturbatory nature of writing about writing. Uh, I think that's pretty much what most of the main cast does for a living. That's what two of my co-hosts want to do for a living. And I think it's, it bears mentioning, and I think they, they made faces at each other as cute. And then me, and now I'm scared. But I think that's what Manhattan does, that, that uh, elevates it to the place of art. They actually even talk about things being derivative. And what is this film, if not a derivation uh, of romantic comedies? Or what are all romantic comedies, if not a derivation of Manhattan and other Woody Allen films? I think it's an interesting conversation to be had. And I think this, much like Pulp Fiction, kind of rests firmly in this weird in-between space of art and uh, popularly uh, consumable media. But it still talks about things that are definitely not popularly consumable media, like Ingmar Bergman. Uh, for instance, and just really Swedish films in general. I just assume all Swedes are smart because of what their movies look like. I think it's a fair assumption. Well, because they're test scores. (laughs) Also true. Uh, Finally, I want to talk about something that this film does that I think really is what makes it the most meta. The most meta thing about it is how self-effacing it is. Is it does take the piss out of itself. You know, there are a lot of things that make it more than some of its parts, but I think that's what most helps it. Because without that... It really is just, you know, a little bit pretentious, to be frank. Uh, It it is a little bit... uh, Could you explain that sound effect? (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm extending the lower part of my jaw past... I'm I'm giving myself an underbite. Yeah, I'm being all East, you know, New England, old money. He seems to be holding a glass of cognac in one hand and a uh, pipe in the other. Cognac is for ponces. Um, but moving on. My point is, though, without uh, this really self-facing nature, it, it is an overly pompous movie. I mean, let's be, let's be real. 
and I think that's a, a lot of you know Woody Allen's character uh, of his writing, and really I think that's kind of a, a through line in a lot of his films is this kind of um, self-deprecating humor, the, this willingness to be like, yeah, this is intellectual, and yeah, it's saying thing intellectual things about intellectual things, but also aren't we all kind of jackasses for talking about this? Uh, and I think that's a really kind of awesome thing about this film and about a lot of other Woody Allen films that I really appreciated. And I think without that, it becomes overly masturbatory, and, and that self-effacing nature helps make it the film it is. Thank you, Mr. Dulles. Do it, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What say you, sir? Well, I think obviously the first thing uh, instantly comes to mind is the tour theory. Um, yeah. The opening uh, monologue about Manhattan. Uh, revealing different opinions and beliefs about this city is probably very reflexive. It's some of the best writing in the movie. <clears throat> For sure. And the most, again, deconstructive. Mm-hmm. It's quite reflective of what Alan actually feels about the town. He's also setting us up for what's going to happen in the film itself. Uh, also, his dialogue throughout the film reveals quite a bit about the director's view on relationships, women, people, entertainment, and the city. I actually foreshadows some events that will take place in his life a little later down the line uh, in regards to his relationships. So there's that. Mm-hmm. The whole Mia Farrow scandal. It's all there. <clears throat> uh, the second major flourish is obviously the use of black and white, I think. Uh, the use of black and white reinforces the morally gray areas present in the film. It's a subtle strategy, but the removal of stark colors for shades of gray help hone the story and dialogue. It also presents opportunities for beautiful images. I think the cinematography here is brilliant. Oh, it looks, it's a beautiful looking film. A beautiful film. Yeah, I, it's beautiful. really great to look at. Um, and there are several images that are even staged and shot to come across the still photography of the bridge mm-hmm. when they're sitting at the bench of the bridge. Uh, a couple, couple of moments. moments. There's a moment at the planetarium in particular yeah. that I remember really uh, being struck by. At the apartment early with Tracy on the couch, I believe. And yeah. He's walking, and it's very, very beautiful. So yeah, it's kind of a it's kind of a wide shot. Yeah. A medium wide that really just yeah that does exactly what you're talking about. It it, it goes out of its way to present yeah. itself as a still image. Yeah. And there are several moments where uh, things take place or conversations take place off screen when they're first in the museum. They begin addressing somebody that we don't see. Just naturally, just address this person like we know who's there. And this is things that remind us we're watching a movie and it's something that the classical style doesn't usually do. Uh, this breaks us out of that. Uh, we're watching a movie ideal quite a bit. And it's that self-referentiality, self-referentiality uh, that Dalton was talking about earlier. Well, Dustin, what what about Manhattan makes? What do you think makes it art? Well, one of the things about uh, art film itself is that it's uh, conversational um, with other film, and this movie certainly is that. Uh, Arthur has already mentioned the the choice of using black and white photography. We're talking the mid seventies here, y'all. Yeah. Um, you don't have to do that. Late seventies. Is it 1979? Is it 79? So we're talking late in 70. You don't have to do it that way. Um, But he makes a choice to do so. He's trying to align the film in some regards with film noir. In fact, you know, another category of noir. You know, there's the original film noir cycle from 1941 to 1959, uh, for those of you keeping track. And then there are those things called neo-noirs, which are made thereafter. And then there's another thing called a near noir, which is not a detective story or a mystery, but it's shot in such a way that it has the stylistic touchstones of noir, a la Casablanca and Citizen Kane. And Casablanca, especially... I would actually argue at Sunset Boulevard, a film that is often called That's a noir, noir to me. Really? Because yeah. I, I don't think it has a detective nature. I think it is a near noir. Well, I think there's a... Tonally, there's something going on. Well, that's a whole other thing. That's a good point. That's... Okay, well, we'll move past that. 
And this movie really is kind of a near noir. It's more of a rom com, but it's got a very much a noirish feeling. It begins with a voiceover that we've already addressed, uh, and, and so it's doing some kind of stylistic touches to that. And then it invokes a very particular film noir that is about a city, which is um, Jules Dawson's The Naked City. Uh, criterion release, uh, very much that realistic style neo noir, uh, most celebratory when you begin to see those first scenes with Gershwin's music, and you see just all these images of Manhattan, of New York City, especially the fireworks scenes, uh, very very reminiscent of that particular film. The uh, the next thing I might suggest is that this film, uh, especially in the side scrolling, now I'm very particular here, the side scrolling exterior shots when Woody Allen is tra traveling from point A to point B. Nearly every single one of these sequences, whether he's picking up his kid or if he's running to meet his teenage lover uh, and everyone in between that are shot much like a Buster Keaton and or mm -hmm. Charlie Chaplin yeah. silent film. In fact, there's never any dialogue in any of these sequences mm -hmm. and all the gags are very much that tramp making his way from mm -hmm. point A to point B. And so he's really much playing with the same kind of king of comedy who also moved to cinema sort of tropes. I think, honestly, it's, it shows a little of the pretension that Dalton was talking about. Uh, it, were it not for the fact that he makes fun of being too pretentious and knowing too much about stuff and being overly thought out about art, uh, this movie would be really constipated. But thankfully, uh, with the use of Diane Keaton's character, I think it fails to do that. Now, I want to move one step forward also in referentiality because I think another aspect of art film or these sort of high cultural uh, watermark films is that they're being used. And I'll just name one, the planetarium scene. Now, it might look back a little to 2001, but it certainly looks forward to the early 80s. You have another comedy where a nerd gets the girl and he shouldn't get the girl. Oh, I'm talking about Revenge of the Nerds. I'm talking about the sex scene on the moon in the planetarium on Revenge of the Nerds. The realization of exactly... Did you not remember? I, that's such a troubling scene because it's basically rape. It's semi-rapey. But it is absolutely a callback to this scene that we're seeing right now in Manhattan where the nerd gets the girl he's got no business getting. Which is kind of what this show's about anyway. I don't know. She banged the guy from Princess Bride, so... <laughs> Inconceivable! Fair enough. Yeah, she's got strange tastes. She does. Older teacher men. There's that. There is that. Or Woody Allen has a thing for younger women. There is also that. Duncan Keaton's about the same age as him, though, right? In real Negative. Life? Really? Mm -hmm. Really? Really? I'd peg her at 10 to 20 years younger in the movie. Close to 20 years younger. Yeah. You know, it's it's. She doesn't look. I mean, she has a more mature look. But it's interesting to see a person so directly addressing their Lolita complex so publicly. I mean, they would go on to do it later, correct? Uh, in the public eye, but it is interesting for uh, for Woody Allen to so directly address his uh, problematic taste in women for for us to to uh, to view. Because if Woody Allen has ever written a main character that wasn't him, that would be a lie for you to say that. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, gang, I think what we need to do now is do what we do on the shows that we always do, and we need to do some analysis. And we talk about what this show means. Let's break apart the pieces and take a look on the inside. I ask you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. You know, there's this popular trend on the internet. Uh, in the, the, the internet. The internet. With a you know, you, you crunch that tea. Pop oh, it. I see it. 
That's it. Uh, this idea of white people problems or first world problems. And that's what this fucking movie's about, if you'll pardon my language. <laughs> um, and I fought with myself a lot over whether or not I hated this film. I really did. And, and it basically came down to how aware... And again, I talked a lot about self-referentiality and self-awareness and meta in my, in my discussion of whether or not this film is art. And I really spent a long time debating, is this film aware of what it's doing? And I came in on yes, and that's why I didn't hate it. If this film is not aware of what it's doing, it is so firmly planted up its own ass that it almost doesn't deserve to exist. Mm-hmm. And that's it's fair. a, th- it's a fair. thin line. And this film is all about that. It is about people who are so shut off from the rest of the world, who so forget that there are other people who, who mm-hmm. lack what in sociology we call the sociological imagination, which, to point to put it in layman's terms, is the ability to assume that someone can live a life that doesn't look anything like yours for mm-hmm. five seconds, to walk in someone else's shoes, basically. Well, even the, the high school girl he's dating, she's she's a... Apparently, spirit because she's about to go to London for this dramatic camp. Even she's not regular. She's no, not normal. Yeah, she's not normal either. And she's clearly living in a high rise apartment in Manhattan yeah. when he goes in the final scene. Mm-hmm. No one in this film is a quote, normal person. They are all upper middle class or higher intellectuals. Mm-hmm. And they don't really give a shit about anybody else. They're Central Park West people. Precisely. Yeah. They don't give a they don't give a damn about the Lower East Side. Uh and that's really interesting to me. And I think, and again, I had such a problem with this film until about the 20-minute mark where I realized, oh, he's totally aware of what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And I don't really remember what it was in particular that made me realize that. I think it might have been the first time Diane Keaton shows up. It might have been earlier. But there's a point in this film where it occurred to me, oh, Woody Allen's fully aware of what the, all these people are like. Because these are the people he hung out with for most of his life. Mm-hmm. These are the people he knew. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think it's at that point you realize that this film is... is is making a comment about these kind of people who all they do is talk about Brecht uh, and, you know, write, TV, write for uh, sketch shows, but what they really want to be doing, you know, is writing their novel uh, about... Or the next Ingmar Bergman picture. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Which I think Woody Allen wanted to do. I think Woody Allen might be talking about himself a little bit in this film because oh, yeah. he was a stand-up. But at the, at the same time, he wanted to make a black-and-white love letter to Manhattan about how big mm-hmm. of a douchebag he is. Uh, and let's make no mistake, Woody Allen is a douchebag. He is a great filmmaker that is a douchebag. And you can love the art and not like the artist, I think, certainly. And I, I've never seen anything to lead me to believe he was not a, he was, he was a likable person. Um, but I like his films. I'm not going to pretend yeah. I don't. I like Woody Allen yeah. movies. And I don't want you to think otherwise. I just don't think he seems like a nice guy. But I don't think he's afraid of that. And that's what I like about him. I, especially in this film, you see that. And that was, that was what I really keyed in on in the theory was who these people are how clueless they are to the rest of the world and how it really doesn't affect them but at the same time how Woody Allen is both inside and taking a moment to step outside of that and look back in on it and realize how problematic it is and that was something I really respected thank you for that Mr. Dalton Stewart that's quite elusive and uh it's quite lucid. I'm pretty lucid most of the time and uh I, I appreciated that bit of analysis Mr. Arthur Gordon what say you sir Oh, my analysis has something to do with another key artistic flourish that I mentioned earlier. <clears throat> and this is one uh, both of an intertextual dialogue uh, this film is having with other works, but also I, I believe the word would be intra-textual. I think you're right. The conversation is having with itself. Following Mr. Robert Stamm. Yes. 
Um, and this is something, it's, it's a key component of the type of the auteur influence that the French New Wave brought with it, of our uh, Godard and of our uh, Truffaut and of those gentlemen. Um, uh, and we've talked about this self-referentiality. Uh, I can't say that word to save my life. Self-referentiality. Self-referentiality. It's a hard one. Uh, we've talked about it a little bit already. Uh, but there's something else going on here, and it's, it's in the music, the non-diegetic music in this film. Um, it's very central to the, the nature of the film, and it does a great job of highlighting the themes and motifs uh, that we're going uh, to partake in. Uh, the first instance happens immediately. Over the opening shots of Manhattan, as Woody Allen pays tribute to a city he is having an affair with, he gives a very interesting monologue, uh, and it's broadcast as the narrative that he is trying to put into his book form. This is the novel he's trying to write about Manhattan, the people uh, living here. But it's a very heavy-handed part of the meta-narrative of the film. Uh, the movie automatically becomes fodder for two or three as Alan's distinct voice discusses his love of the city, and he opens up our world with the phrase, quote, To him, no matter what the season was, this was still a town that existed in black and white and pulsated to the great tunes of George Gershwin, end quote. Uh, this is important in two parts. It opens our eyes to the meta-narrative meta as we realize we are watching a movie called Manhattan, uh, which is filmed in black and white, but also this is accompanied by a beautiful score. In fact, it is George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue that is playing over the credits. But it doesn't mm -hmm. stop there. The entire score is made up of Gershwin's music. And this is just part of the beginning of what will become quotation upon quotation upon quotation within the film. Now, I had no idea about Gershwin's music until I started doing research. I recognized the music, especially the opening title, but I recognized it from the critic. Uh, a Fox TV series in the mid-90s. Good show. Uh, voiced by John Lovitz. Incredible show, but that opening title opening title is either the same music or at least they play on this music. It's funny to look back on your childhood, uh, particularly cartoons for some reason, mm -hmm. uh, but really anything you watch as a child and realize that so much of your understanding of popular culture is referential to older popular culture. Oh, yeah. It's really the Simpsons. No doubt. The Simpsons, the Simpsons. especially. Yeah. Uh, Rugrats and, and uh, really the Nicktoons of the yeah. early and mid-90s are one that I look back on time and like, oh God, I know this from that. And I know Manhattan from those cartoon shows. Well, interestingly, everyone's seen Casablanca, even if you've never seen exactly. Casablanca. Well, I've heard you could put together Citizen Kane from The Simpsons. That does not surprise me. You no, could put together that film from The Simpsons if you, if you uh, want That's to. what happens when you let smart people write funny stuff. There's that. I slurred that. I lisped it. There is another piece of music, though, that I did recognize instantly upon hearing it, and it's in the scene, the bridge scene, that mm -hmm. plays out between Mary and Ike as they're walking along. They go, I believe, to a deli or a bakery of some sort. Mm -hmm. She has her dachshund, and then they wind up sitting at the bridge. And it's, uh, it's after they leave the party of Fellini's followers, as uh, Ike so uh, eloquently puts it. But it is, in fact, Gershwin's Somebody to Watch Over Me, uh, mm -hmm. which I recognize more famously as uh, a song by Ella Fitzgerald. Um, but and Fitzgerald is who was name checked in the she film. She is invoked during the argument with Yale. Yeah. Uh, later on in the film, uh, and she did. She sang quite a few of. She sang an entire Gershwin album, I guess. Of she did a cover album essentially of Gershwin music huh. at some point. No. Um, because "Embrace Me" is also in this movie, and she did a cover of "Embrace Me." Um, the lyrics, which we don't hear in the film, but are invoked if you know the song, work very well in elaborating on the themes of the film and speak to the motivations of the women involved and even uh, the men at some points. Uh, quote, Looking everywhere, haven't found him yet. He's the big affair I cannot forget. Only man I ever think of with regret. 
End quote. That's pretty much all of the four central characters' motivation. Correct. Correct. This is one of the verses from uh, someone to watch over me. Well, even minor characters like Meryl Streep's character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Jill. She's she's invoked all the characters. Uh, we see this in the film uh, with all the major women involved: Mary, Tracy, and Jill. Jill is uh, Meryl Streep. Tracy is the high schooler, and Mary is Diane Keaton. Um, they I have forgotten how much of a fox Meryl Streep used to be. Right. They all had some sort of affair, and certainly Jill, more than the others, can't forget Ike. She even wrote a book about it, and Mary can't seem to forget to, seem to forget Yale. And each lady has regrets of the men, or at least the man they have loved, Ike. However, the theme of regret becomes more prevalent towards the end of the film, as even Ike shows regret for some of his affairs, as he's having a discourse with Yale's uh, ex-wife at this point, because he leaves for uh, Mary by the end of the film. Uh, this leads into the next verse of the song. Uh, there's a somebody I'm longing to see. I hope that he turns out to be someone who will watch over for me. Tracy, more than the other, seems to be looking for this this protection, this father figure, essentially, in her older man, of four, roughly 40s, I believe. Um, I think she's found it, Ike. Yet Ike knows that Tracy is just a fling, and Jill seems to have found this in Connie, and Mary may find it in Yale by the end of the film. And this goes to the next verse. Although he may not be the man some girls think of as handsome, to my heart he carries the key. And this seems to be the most biographical part of the song for Woody Allen himself. Because he's not that good looking of a guy. Yeah. He's, a, he's a weird looking guy, not going to lie. <clears throat> the big glasses, the odd face, the hair. I don't see this guy as being a, a lady killer. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. And here it's where he begins to seem to be driving his ego... And the starring role is this neurotic writer, uh, for all intents and purposes, a ladies' man. He scores with a high school co-ed, hooks up with Diane Keaton. At some point in his life, he got with Meryl Streep. Uh, in this, at some point, he was involved in a three-way with Diane or Meryl Streep and her now lover. And uh, if Woody were, Allen weren't a celebrity, I don't think this would have happened uh, to save his life. And this led me to send a, a, a text message to the guys that... If you've seen or if you've listened to our uh, Good Trash genre cast over Stargate, uh, Dustin made a reading that Stargate was a nerd fantasy. Well, if that was a nerd fantasy, then I believe this is a geek's wet dream because Woody Allen is having it out for himself here. And I think that's uh, that's a problem with a lot of Woody Allen's films is they are really self-indulgent. And that was part of why I had such a hard time deciding if I liked this movie Mm -hmm. or not was it is so much about... The Woody Allen's a badass show, basically, for lack of a you know a better way to put it. If he had stopped a bank robbery and maybe like saved a, a building of hostages, yeah, we would exactly. Have, we would have been somewhere. Right? I'll be honest, I checked out for a little bit though after he said, "Ladies, man, all I could think about was Leon Phelps." <laughs> <laughs> oh, the one you love, and do it in the butt. Oh, Tim Robbins, I love him. Meadows. She said Tim Robbins. I, I love them both. Is that okay? <laughs> Is okay. that okay with you? Yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> Andy Dufresne. <laughs> I knew I liked Andy Dufresne right away. Oh, Jesus. But what I think is important to draw from Manhattan is the importance of every little detail of a film, especially one that may be independently produced and not filled with product placement or a band under contract with the studio. Uh, this is a film, though very pretentious and heavy-handed in much of its meta narrative. every little thing, dialogue, pieces within the mise-en-scene, Shot composition and music all elaborate on the thematic development of the film, and nothing can be discounted as it has all been chosen for a specific purpose, which makes this a great piece for auteur study. We have Stanley Kubrick standing 
in the set arranging the cans so that he can tell his story. Arthur, I'm so glad you brought up Stanley Kubrick because I think you are on the right track with your reading, but I think you come to the wrong conclusion. Okay. And uh, what I want to suggest to you is this, is that he sets up this sort of history of badassery, mm-hmm. uh, uh, of sexual jungle cat isticness and... <laughs> and, <laughs> and but it is all for the point of setting up a situation of utter frustration. A la Tom Cruise hooked up with no Nicole Kidman. He's got no business being with that woman. And Eyes Wide Shut is all about his sexual frustration, un, his inability to really be able to fulfill his desires upon the women in his life. And I think Manhattan, in this sort of Freudian reading, is doing the same sorts of things. He's been left by his amazingly hot wife, right? He landed the amazingly hot wife, but he lost the amazingly hot wife, and she's into another gal now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got he can, he can pick up a girl. No trouble meeting women, but they're like 17-year-old girls, and he feels morally dubious about this. It's like, maybe not really something I should do. And then he thinks he's going to pick up... He's he's hooked up with the uh, proto-manic pixie dream girl. Correct. Off of his best friend, but then she goes back to the best friend, and so he loses her. And then when he finally runs back to the only girl that really would put up with him, she has to put him off for six months until she gets back from England. It's all about this idea that I really should be this sexual dynamo, but I keep not performing. I keep not being able to close the deal. It is this idea that I have all this libido and I have no opportunity to act it out. And so it's that that, 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 that sort of neurotic frustrated cycle. It's going to be the title of my autobiography. <laughs> all this libido and nowhere to act it out. <laughs> Available from Random House in <laughs> 2015. That's fantastic. Chapter 1, Oklahoma City. <laughs> it was my town. Uh, but it wasn't. No, God, no. Sadly, no. Uh, and, and I think that's really where Alan is, 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 again, the self-reflexivity. He wants to create this sort of hero-style fantasy where he is that man, large in charge, big man on campus sort of fellow, but his experience prevents him from writing a film that measures up to what that would look like. And so you don't get Wolf of Wall Street. You instead get something much more like Eyes Wide Shut. Well, and there's a there's an interesting moment uh, that, that harkens back to what you just said where he does the thing that I think everyone is probably going to do at least one point in their life is they take a stance on moral grounds. on a, As a point of pride, they quit their job, middle fingers in the air, and walk out and then realize, oh, God, what have I done? Mm-hmm. How am I going to live? <laughs> um, and I think that's an interesting, you know, I, I, I like where you're coming to with this. Like, Woody Allen takes all these points to, to, to up himself to big himself up as this kind of cool guy, but then shows the neurotic aftermath of, of those moments. And I, I think that is an interesting reading you're coming to. It, it's really an existential reading, I, I think, of the film, is that mm-hmm. life is fundamentally frustrating. And existentialism is nothing if not a, uh, a honky problem. It, no doubt. No doubt. And so he's really just reflecting on his personal frustration. And so what he does is he creates the uh, situation in which... He should not be frustrated, and he totally is. He is utterly 
frustrated on every front, professionally, sexually, relationally, in every other way. This is all his life is just frustration following frustration. Well, guys, I think that's some fantastic analysis, and I think that's some great thinking about this particular film, and I'm so glad that we spent some time together uh, talking about it. Now, we need to ask a question. Now, in the regular show, we ask shelf or trash of those good trash films that we're looking at. We're going to ask this question. is Because uh, I, I think we're going to say this is a shelfable film. I mean, the films that we're going to look at in, in good trash new cinema, they're always going to be shelfable. They may not individually, personally make it into our tastes, but the cultural consensus is there. As, as we often say, they belong in the canon. Correct. They're, they're not disposable. They're films that exist to be discussed as part of a film studies class, as we, as we say in the good trash uh, genre cast. The films we do on that show usually don't belong in such a place. And I think, yeah, the films we do on here, are, there has been a cultural consensus that they are art and they're worth seeing and talking about. So we're not going to say this is not unwatchable tripe, but we are going to say this. Is this actually that high canonistic? Is this art? As Pauline Kael said, that inspired the names of our show. Films are so rarely good art. If you can't appreciate the good trash, what's the point? So we're asking that question. Is this art or is this really just good trash? I ask you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I'd say it's art, but barely. I mean, it's close. And again, I, I, I spent a long time deciding how much I liked this film. I think at the end of the day, it's probably just a romantic comedy with a little extra quirk. But I think for the conversation it has with itself and with art and the, the films it would go on to spawn, I think that makes it art in a lot of ways. Thank you, Mr. Dullstert. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you think? Wait, I'm sorry. Are we, are we going to do Elster instead? Oh, Elster instead. That's why I paused because you didn't mention Elster instead. I didn't I was mention it, but I was going to pause to let you kick also, we always do an else or instead, so in this case, I believe it would be an else. It would be an else, you know, kind of a what wine's going with this cheese sort of scenario to make it real, <laughs> to make it real pretentious. Did <laughs> so you get cake out of that? You'll be okay? Um, you know, I really feel like you could pair this. Right on the floor, drinking wine and eating cheese. <laughs> I feel like this is a film that you could pair with really just about in the, any independent film, because it, it really... And not just in terms of stylistically, mm -hmm. but in terms of tropes that are addressed, in terms of plotting, uh, in terms of main characters. This is really the proto-indie film, uh, at least American indie film. You know, capital I, capital D. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. not, in not independent film, but I mean indie film. If you catch my meaning. Independent film as a genre, not a way of getting a movie made. Correct. A more succinct way to mm -hmm. put it. So really, you could watch any of them. I, I would say um, check out a film that we either just uh, released an episode over or released an episode over a while back, depending on when you listen to this. Uh, and that's going to be uh, Kevin Smith's Clerks, which I think really shares a lot of the same DNA with Manhattan. Mm -hmm. It's a film about a place a person grows up. One's a little bit more blue-collar than the other, but both are self-referential in terms of art. Both are kind of slice-of-life films that don't really have any larger overarching narrative um, and both are shot in black and white even though they didn't have to be uh, another more recent independent film that came to mind watching this was a 500 Days of Summer uh, with Zoe Deschanel and again you see a lot of the DNA of Manhattan in that film this idea of a guy chasing a girl, this quirky girl who's who's got all these interesting things about her and then it's kind of a deconstruction 
of films like that. And I think between Manhattan and between 500 Days of Summer, you see an endless drivel of films in which a writer expresses himself on screen by writing a story in which he's basically the main character and he's chasing after this super cool, super interesting girl who's going to help him find himself. And I think both of those films act as deconstructions of that, uh, although I think really the antithesis, um, kind of the anti-deconstruction of that is Ruby Sparks, which is another recent film by uh, Ellie Kazan, which is a really good film. And I think those are both kind of like children of Manhattan in a way that you don't have those without Manhattan. So really all American independence cinema over the last 30 years. I like that pick. Thank you, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say? Does this, is this art or is this just good trash? I think I'm going to echo Dalton. I don't know that it is high art. It wants to be. And I think it just it's, barely yeah, makes it. It sneaks in a little yeah. bit. I don't know that. I don't know. If this probably, is better I don't know, than trash. If there was a, if we had a, a line somewhere, we this, this on good this trash. This is trash time. you would actually eat out of the trash can. If we could find three films, one just above the line, one that is the line, and one just below the line, this is. It would be right on the line yeah. with that second film. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I think it is art. There, it's doing a lot of very artist, artistic, things within the composition, the way it's done, and. I, yeah, I think it is. I, I'd say, yeah, it's art. I mean, just for no better way to put it, there's... I'm sure Babylon more about how this is art. And I... I you know what? I think I know the three films... I think I know the three films are. What? Pulp Fiction's just above the line, right? Okay. Taxi Driver's right on the line. No, it's right above the line. Damn it. <sighs> Easy Rider's right on the line. Okay. And just below the line... True Romance. Actually, that's a great one. That's perfect, actually. Yeah, I'd say that works. Yeah. So this is right there with Easy Rider. Yeah. It's a film from a young ma- filmmaker who wants to make an art film. Yeah. And just kind of meanders around a little bit too much. I think that's fair. Yeah. That's fair. But I think else, I think this movie pairs perfectly with Chasing Amy, another Kevin oh, Smith man. film. Yeah. I think this, because of the relationships, the things that play out in Chasing Amy, mm-hmm. I think this is a perfect pairing uh, for Manhattan. I could definitely see that. And obviously, I think... Uh, Midnight in Paris, uh, because of the the love for a city, I think that's there as well. Although the opening sequence of Manhattan is a lot more uh, palatable than the opening sequence of Midnight in Paris, which made me want to put a you know forty five caliber aspirin in my mouth. Dustin sells. Um, what do you think, Manhattan? Good trash or good art? Honestly, I'm going to say it's good trash. I don't think it's art. You don't even think it crosses the no, threshold. No, this is this is not a this is not an Ingmar Bergman film. Yeah, this is not. Um, Touch of Evil by Orson Welles. It's not even, I mean, you know, not even, you know, doesn't touch Citizen Kane, doesn't touch Casablanca, doesn't touch Vertigo. It doesn't touch Woody Allen's other movies. It doesn't touch Annie Hall. It doesn't touch Midnight in Paris. It doesn't touch Blue Jasmine. This is, this movie's fine, but it's not as good as other stuff. I, I, I think it's some of his best trash. Um, there's some bad trash in uh, Woody's oeuvre, but uh, this is this is some of his best trash. I don't I don't think it's that great. Scoop. <laughs> well, <laughs> moving on. Uh, what I would say that you should watch instead is you should watch Moonrise Kingdom. Oh, because good movie. Good there movie. you have some high art, romantic comedy, quirky, strange, uh, finagling with different genre tropes. I mean, that's certainly, I mean, the genesis of Woody Allen and of, of Manhattan and of, of this early 
the apotheosis, if you the, will. The capital I indie film is Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the late 90s, early aughts, moving on even into the present. Equivalent of this film, I think, is Wes Anderson and his films. That's I love Moonrise Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it really is a good pair uh, with this, or rather a replacement. Yeah. Um, and also, if you really do like Manhattan, and you don't necessarily need that whole love letter to a city, but you like it set in the same city, uh, as I've mentioned already, uh, I like a lot uh, Eyes Wide Shut, which is not at all filmed in New York. It's all filmed on stages in England by Stanley Kubrick and is all about that sort of sexual frustration. There's a whole lot of talk about how this is such a hot erotic film, but the fact of the matter is Tom Cruise never gets it done. No, not once. And that's kind of fabulous. Well, it's... Um, man, I, you know, I, that's a film I really need to revisit, but it's it's like Shame in that it's uh, the Stephen Queen film from mm-hmm. uh, 2011. 2012? Uh, yeah, 11, I think. 11 or 12. In that, it is such a clinical look at sex. It is a film that is so about sex, but could not be less sexual. Correct. It is just very clinical and cold and sterile and scary. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's the intentionality of, of both film filmmakers. Yeah. Of the film. And, uh, you know, I, I, I sometimes am troubled that it's classified as an erotic thriller. Because it's not. It totally isn't. You know, when I hear erotic thriller, I think that really really crappy movie with uh, Willem Dafoe and uh, Madonna. What? Yeah, it's bad. And also, I always think of Basic, basic, basic Instinct. Instinct. Yeah. This one's bad because there's some straight up softcore pornography in it. Uh, just some just some straight up uh, grinding against each other. That's really awkward. Uh, two people you don't want to see have sex. Willem Dafoe and Madonna. And it's basically the same plot as Basic Instinct but it's a horrifying film. <laughs> It's truly troubling. So yeah, no, I agree. You made his puppy die. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't make the movie, sorry. Uh, But I agree. Eyes Wide Shut is not an erotic thriller at all. It's a deconstruction, if anything. And I think that's the same thing that uh, Woody Allen's Manhattan. It's not the story of this oversexed TV writer. It's about this story of this TV writer who thinks himself or... um, rather establish himself as deserving of being oversexed and finds himself undersexed. And that is something very all interesting. All the libido and no... no I don't even forgot the title of the book. <laughs> yeah, all the libido and nowhere to use it. That's you know? right. And and that's really the, the, the problem there. And I think yeah. uh, the same sort of thing's going on in Kubrick uh, with eyes wide shut. All right, well, we're going to move on now and uh, we're going to call it a night. We're so glad that you stayed with us for this this edition of Good Trash New Cinema. The, the second edition thereof. The second thereof. We're going to move on now to our third film. Which shall be uh, French film, Holy Motors. Uh, directed by a man whose name no one can decide how to pronounce. Leos Cax. Hey, it's a screen... Yeah, it's a pen name anyway. Good name. Good it name. is a total pen name, and in fact, one of the characters is an also anagram of said name. I've heard of Leo Carra. I've heard so many different ways. I it can't even... It doesn't bloody matter. It doesn't matter. It's from 2012. It, yeah, very, very recently. Uh, made a lot of top ten lists mm-hmm. uh, that time, uh, including the BFI. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's definitely well regarded. It is definitely uh, an interesting film. It's a film about making films. Yeah. And I think that seems to be one of those crazy things about what makes an art film an art film. Yeah. Is it's about what it is. What it, 
It's about what it is, that, that self-reflexivity that we've been talking about so much tonight. And there's going to be quite a lot of that, I think, in this film as well. To, to paraphrase Eminem, it is a film that is so much an art film, it's almost doing donuts in the parking lot with the windows down and the systems up, uh, shouting, you know, obscenities at people. That I am an art film and I will be acknowledged. I haven't seen it yet, but it is its reputation is almost notorious. It's a film that I already will confess that I like a lot. It's got the single greatest accordion scene in all of cinema. I've, I'm looking forward. That's weird. That there's <laughs> take much. On. Yeah, <laughs> that's a short list. It's not, you know, it's not like the greatest tracking shot or. Uh, it's like if your greatest, hands don't go in the air in that moment, you have no soul. The, the greatest masturbation scene involving a food stuff. It's a short list. Although that's probably... Oh, they're all John Waters films, aren't they? I was going to say American Pie. <laughs> yeah. um, that's weird that... I'm excited to watch this. So I've been looking forward to catching up with this one. Arthur, have you seen Holy Motors? I have not. All right. Well, that's what we'll do next time on the Contrast Cinema. Thank you for announcing our name once again. Um, we want to keep the conversation going. We can do that via social media. Um, Arthur, can you tell us anything about social media with uh, the Good Trash crew and where you can have the conversation? Uh, yeah, Dustin, you can find us at uh, facebook.com uh, forward slash Good Trash Genrecast with one word if you're on there. And then you can also email us at Good Trash Genrecast at gmail.com. Well, Dustin. There's no escaping it. <laughs> there. Chapter one. He, he, chapter one. He looked out onto the internet and he saw his his website. And it would always be his website. It represented everything about him. The drugs and the loud television. It was his Twitter. And it always would be. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find the Good Trash Genre cast, uh, the parent show of the Good Trash uh, at, at good underscore trash. Uh, finally, we're also at good trash uh, genre cast.tumblr.com. There is artwork always to be found uh, therein. You might even see a couple things from our last episode or two episodes back uh, about Pulp Fiction, in which you might see some relativity between Pulp Fiction and a film called Psycho, and it might make you very, very happy. But that all being said, we're so glad uh, that you have stayed with us this long to hear this show uh, with us, and uh, we can also keep the conversation going with you individually um, on Twitter and other means of social media. Dalton, where are you at? Uh, I can be found on Twitter at doll underscore stew. Not like my names, not like my names are spelled, but like you'd spell, you know, a children's toy in a hearty uh, dish with a, with a broth. Uh, I can also be found on Letterboxd, which is a really cool uh, social. Mm-hmm. media site that uh, kind of combines a little bit of uh, diarying and uh, reviewing a film. I just search Dalton Stewart, you'll find me. I love that website. Mr. Arthur Gordon, where are you located? Uh, you can keep up with me on uh, at ArthurGordonJr.wordpress.com Are you actually Arthur Gordon Jr. or was Arthur Gordon the first taken? No, Jr. I did not know that. I'm going to call you AJ. Okay. Better than OJ. Just call I am... Dinner. On Tumblr at iProtein, as in E Y E protein. It's good for you. 
www.tumblr.com. I'm also um, at Dustin underscore cells on the Twitter Twitter and would love to tweet alongside you all or Tumble or Facey Facebook or wherever you find me because the conversation that we're having right now really is about you, dear listener, and about how we can talk about these meaningful films and how they help us enrich and better understand the lives that we encounter ourselves and that's really why we do this show and so we're so glad you're here with us uh, talking with us. Take a look at Holy Motors. And uh, tell us what you thought about what we said about Manhattan. And until then, we'll see you next time. I, uh, I finally had an orgasm, and my doctor told me it was the wrong kind. Did you have the wrong kind? Really? I've never had the wrong kind, ever, ever. My worst one was right was on the money. Somebody I'm longing to see I hope that he turns out to be Someone who was over me I'm a little lamb who's lost in the wood And I know I could always be good to Please support.